Welcome to Empower Humans. Welcome again to the Empower Humans podcast. This is episode 39, another powerful interview, this time with John Mabry, who has experienced several tragedies and traumas in his life. Maybe you have too. Some of his particular tragedies include losing his leg in the aftermath of a terrible rollover accident when he was real young in college. He lost his brother also to an overdose, who was also his best friend and has experienced his own addictions. He works with addictioncampuses.com and anybody experiencing any of this for themselves or loved one can go to that website, addictioncampuses.com or call 888-614-2251. Again, 888-614-2251 for help. Uh, whatever you do, reach out for help somewhere because there are lots of resources and tons and tons of love for those in the grasps of this thing we call addiction. And so there's tons of support for you. Uh, we talked briefly after the interview about relapse with, in his case, pornography and other substances, even after getting on this road of helping other people, lifting other people, speaking to other people. And it doesn't make you an awful person if you've relapsed uh, or have seen that with yourself or others. Uh, there's always hope. That's the main message. This interview is all about love and hope honesty and courage. There is hope for you and your loved ones. And we remind you, as always, of our audience, we always tell our audience two things. You are priceless and you are never alone. Go back and listen to some of our other episodes. We talk a little more in depth, especially some of the ones where there's not an interview, but you are priceless and you are not alone. And keep that in mind as we also get into these challenges real quick as we get into the interview. I always give three challenges to our audience. Number one, study. Keep studying. If you have been, start studying. If you haven't been, I have a New Year's resolution myself this year. It's now November as of this recording to listen to or read at least one book a week throughout the year. And so far, I'm already ahead of myself. It's November. I'm on my 54th book and uh, finished some great books recently. And I encourage you to do the same thing in your own way, whatever works for you, whether it's two books a year or or you watch some videos. It's something educational that's going to stimulate your mind and give you added insight and knowledge and power in your lives. It's about empower humans, so that's what this studying thing is all about. And as always, I want to remind you that our episode here, just like some of these others recently, is brought to you by Audible. Audible offers our listeners a free trial and a free audiobook, a free audiobook, so you can get started that way as well with a free audiobook. And I have a list at empowerhumans.com slash books of some of the books I've gone through. You can go to audibletrial.com slash empowerhumans to see their great selection, pick something out for yourself, get a free audiobook and start on this road and see if audiobooks is, is one of the ways you want to study, start studying, keep studying. So go there, audibletrial.com slash empowerhumans. And the second challenge is always make great moments. Surprise your loved ones. Be there for them. Love is a verb, not just a noun. It's not just a thing that's just there. We've got to constantly do actions to love and, and be there for our loved ones. So that's what this whole thing is with making great moments. And the last challenge, as always, is let's keep doing this podcast together. So listen to this interview with an open mind and an open heart, whatever your circumstances are, and think of ways you can help yourself and others with this whole topic of addiction. It's a very large and growing problem in our society. And so without further ado, enjoy our interview with John Mabry. Hey, John, how you doing today? Yeah, great. How are you? Good, my friend. We haven't talked on the phone as of yet, but today's the day, and I've been looking forward to this. It's, it's not always the funnest topic we're going to get into today. And uh, I appreciate you reaching out to me as well, because 
we were kind of, I told you we were kind of on the same, same wavelength in the sense that, uh, I've been wanting to get somebody on our podcast who's actually dealt with this, uh, this whole topic of addiction and you it sounds like have dealt with it, uh, in a lot of in a lot of kind of extreme ways too, to be honest, from what you're telling me. Yeah. So kind of, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people do. They just don't talk about it, or you don't know about it, or they keep it behind closed doors, and so that you know that's part of the problem is part of the problem is we don't talk about it enough. <clears throat> yeah. And so be able to um, speak my truth. It helps me out and can uh, help somebody else out. So. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm honored, honored to get to be here and, and talk with you about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's the idea. I mean, as you know, our podcast is empower humans. So we're not, we're not just here to just tell stories. These are kind of things that, well, what can I, and what can whatever, whoever's in our audience who may come from any sort of background, male, female, whatever orientation they have in their life, uh, what can they learn from this to maybe make their life better and easy, even if it doesn't have to do with substance addiction, some other thing, or if a loved one, you know, suffers from these things. So that's kind of the idea of, of what we're going to talk about, I think, today. And, uh, but, but tell me a little bit about some of your background as far as, I like to, I like to kind of start at the beginning and, uh, <laughs> and kind of go from there, but your childhood and so forth, where'd you grow up? Yeah, so um, I grew up in San Antonio, Texas, uh, born uh, into a great, you know, loving, supportive, encouraging um, you know, family I had older brother, older brother, Matt was three and a half years uh, older than me. It was just the two of us. And mm-hmm. um, we had a pretty, you know, what I would say, quote unquote, normal, normal childhood and upbringing. Um, and high school, uh, played basketball. Uh, well, well, let me go back a little bit more. My nickname since I was about three years old is Crash, if that says anything about me. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, just always getting into stuff, getting in trouble, you know, struggling with impulse control, um, mm. always trying to push the limits, seeking, you know, adrenaline seeking activities, jumping off the roof of the shed when nobody, you know, I shouldn't have been doing that. It's like, I think I can do that. It's really high. I'm, I'm going to jump off the roof of the shed, you know, just things like that, that uh, now yeah. looking back, uh, being in a program of, of recovery from, from, you know, alcohol and addiction, um, saw that th- things early on were, were kind of put into play, put into motion. Hmm. Do, do you think, uh, you talk about this nickname, is this sometimes things like this are more people prone to it than others? I mean, in my experience, it seems like that's the case. I think scientifically, some uh, studies have shown this as well, genetically as well. Um, but we're still talking kind of about your childhood and high school days. Uh, what's, what's your thought process on that, having some experience with this? So um, repeat that question one more time for me. Well, I'm referring Sorry. to your your nickname. You talked about uh, jumping off the shed and kind of some daring behavior. And boys tend to be that way in general, anyway. But is there uh, some people are more prone to kind of uh, addictive yeah. uh, behavior than others? Sounds like is that kind of your take as well? Your experience. So there's two uh, parts to that. I would how I'd answer that is. Um, one, I think part of it's personality and um, just kind of the you know your genes and and what. Uh, the kind of person that you are. Now, mm-hmm. additionally, on the other side, I think it's environment um, and learned experience as well. So what I didn't find out until years into working a recovery program and being uh, in and out of sobriety, um, I looked at some childhood trauma that I never knew existed. And it was this trauma therapist I went to, and she's like, look, I don't, I don't care about your traumas, what happened later on in life, what happened to you as a child? And I was like, what are you talking about? She mm-hmm. was like, no, no, something happened as a kid that set the tone early on for how you reacted to these other things. Yeah, and I was like, 
pain. The only thing I can think of is I had some ear surgeries as a kid, but that wasn't a big deal. And she's like, no, 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 John, that, that's, that's where it all began. I guarantee it. So we went back and unpacked that over multiple sessions. And I, I drew these crayon drawings. She gave me crayons and just these blank white pieces of paper. And I'm like, man, my life's been reduced to this. <laughs> and uh, what came out was, I mean, oh my gosh, early on. So I had six ear surgeries as a kid. I have a transplanted eardrum and the three bones in, in my left ear are prosthetic bones. So come to find out from an early age, I felt defective, different, insecure. Mm. I'm not good enough. I'm broken. There's something wrong with me. And nobody ever told me that. That's just how I felt through these experiences. And so I think uh, me being the crash person was is almost like a, a, a tension. You know, if I got hurt, um, if I did something I wasn't supposed to be doing, whether I got, you know, whether there was a consequence for it or not, uh, I wanted the attention. Mm. And I think it was because I was scared and insecure. I didn't think I was good enough, so at least let me get some attention. Mm. Yeah, that's an interesting uh, uh, kind of assessment because as I think about it, and I, I've looked at people a lot lately, I've been reading a lot of books and so on and trying to look at myself too. I'm not just looking at everybody else. <laughs> and and you kind of learn some things about the nature of people. We're, we're kind of born with a desire to find value for ourselves too. And where you had your own perceived I get maybe deficiency with this ear situation. Maybe that led you to maybe try to compensate in some in some ways a little bit more with this whole crash thing, get attention. Uh, that's just kind of what I'm reading into what you're telling yeah. me. So going back to like my, my upbringing, my, my school year. So I end up uh, senior year in high school. Um, I was at, at prom. We're sitting there at prom and they start doing the senior superlatives mm-hmm. and they get up and they say, all right, uh, and my goal senior year was to get class clown. I, mean, I, was, I was dead set. I'm going to get class clown. <laughs> and I worked really hard to do that. And so they named me, cla- I got named class clown. And I was like, yes. <laughs> and then they come up and they say, uh, uh, best personality for male is John Mabry. I was like, what? All right, cool. <laughs> then uh, most cool spirited comes up, John Mabry. And uh, there's one other one. So I ended up getting four senior superlatives for these, like acting out as a performer. Wow. Um, to not let people see what was really going on inside of me. And this, this trauma therapist helped me see that. She was like, look, you overcompensated for all this stuff that you felt as a child. Here you are in high school getting class clown, most outgoing, most cool-spirited, best personality. She's like, you know, typical, uh, you know, it's very typical for, for, I mean, look at somebody like Robin Williams, you know, he's just you know off the charts funny and, and crazy, but what was going on, you know, in, inside of him. So... It's been neat to, uh, you know, learn some of these things, and I've had to do it the hard way <laughs> through uh, experiencing some, some pretty difficult consequences of, uh, you know, um, hurting relationships and, and loved ones and my mm-hmm. wife and children in, in terms of my addiction. But um, I'm not giving up. I'm yes. willing to just keep looking and keep digging underneath the surface, and I'm still uncovering things today in therapies uh, that uh, are, you know, really serving me serving me well um, to keep moving forward in life with today's you know, struggles, today's anxieties and worries. Mm -hmm. I didn't just feel insecure as a kid. I still feel insecure today a lot of times, you know? Mm -hmm. I I get nervous about doing an interview with you. Am I going to be good enough? Am I going (laughs) to say what what he wants me to say? Are people going to like me? Are people going to listen to it? Mm -hmm. These are things that still come up to me today, even even with all the time uh, in in treatment and 12-step meetings and things that I go to. It's kind of the you know, I've dealt with a lot of the past stuff, and now it's just the, just the day-to-day stuff that I think a lot of people just push aside. And, the, you know, it's really easy for me to stare at my phone and, and go on Facebook and go, let me distract myself from what's really going on inside of me by looking at Instagram and Facebook. 
well, that just like adds fuel to the fire. Then I see all the other awesome stuff everybody's doing, and I'm uh-huh. not living up to that expectation. Oh my god! So you know, so then then pornography comes up. That's been an issue for me in the recent past is, uh, mm-hmm. that I'm you know willing to talk about is uh, is pornography is was a just an easy fix for a while. You know, I wasn't drinking or drugging, but you know, I'm still finding an unhealthy way to cope with what's going on inside. For a lot of people, it's shopping. Uh, it can be exercise, you know, training for the triathlon or the marathon. That can be your, you know, your vice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, food. Food's a really big one, right? Yeah. Um, so it doesn't just have to be drugs or alcohol, but it's a you know, addiction in general is just very, you know, so much more pervasive now than ever. And have you heard of the theory that the Rat Park experiment? Have you ever heard of that? Uh, what's it called? So the Rat Park experiment. No, go ahead. Tell me about it. All right. So there's a theory, and I'm not asking everybody to subscribe to it. I'm just asking people to have an open heart and an open mind to this theory, uh, backed by scientific data. And there's a they put a rat inside of a cage. And in the 70s, uh, scientists put a rat inside of a cage by itself. Uh-huh. And they gave him water, a bottle of water, uh, or water laced with heroin or cocaine. And every single time, the rat would go for the drugged water compulsively until it overdosed. So they think since the 70s, there's chemical hooks in the drug that make you keep coming back. Well, a psychologist came and looked at this 20 years later and said, well, wait, the rat's inside of a cage by itself. What would you do if you were inside of a cage by yourself? If you were in solitary confinement in prison and you were given water or water laced with heroin, yeah, heroin sounds like a great option just to kill the pain. Mm-hmm. Use the pain of being lonely and disconnected. So they built Rat Park, and it's this huge table with all these rats, and there's like you know families of rats running around, and balls to play with, and tunnels to scamper down. It's like heaven for rats, and they gave them the same water options, and not one rat ever used the drug water compulsively, and not one rat ever overdosed. Yeah, they were given the same exact options. So it led the scientists and the psychologists to believe that it's connection. That connection is what keeps people, um, you know, healthy. And disconnection is what opens up the door for people to, to feel that disconnect and that loneliness or that dis-ease. You know, the word disease is dis-ease. There's a dis-ease inside of your, your heart or your soul um, yeah, that allows yeah. uh, addiction to, uh, to creep in accidentally. And for so many people, it's just it's an accidental thing. It's not a, hey, I'm going to go out and you know, put heroin and you know, shoot heroin in my veins. No. Starts off with, man, I, I'm not, something's not right. I got some pain pills from a surgery I got. Mm-hmm. Thing you know, you're off to the races and you're buying heroin. Oh my god! Just ask, yeah. Well, and and that's I mean, boy, you, there's a lot there. And first of all, I want to reassure you, you're doing great. So don't be too nervous <laughs> <laughs> because you did Thank mention you. that early on as well. But uh, yeah, it sounds like and there's a lot there with that whole study, the rat uh, thing you mentioned, as well as one of the things I'm hearing and that I've heard a lot with this particular topic is just the general concept of, of filling a void. And it's, for example, not everybody obviously is Mr. Class Clown trying to get attention. I was kind of that way myself. I, for one, didn't get into any substance things, you know, alcohol, drugs, and so on. Um, but, but people find ways to compensate. And I think that's, I mean, I could speak very grandly as the, to the universe. The universe as a whole what makes it function is balance. The universe demands balance. Mm-hmm. And so we feel imbalanced yeah. and we're part of this universe for crying out loud. And so when we feel imbalanced, people do different things. And you're right. Sometimes people will turn to, you know, running or, or some other thing. And and those can be good things, but sometimes it gets a little compulsive and a little maybe out of balance or becomes too much. 
So uh, this this whole thing with filling voids is, is some of what what uh, I'm hearing as well. And, and you're talking about kind of to me, were you, did you feel like maybe you weren't reassured enough? Like you had this self image with your ear situation and so on. Um, did, did you feel like you needed more verbal reassurance or, uh, uh great question, great insight. And, uh, in, in question, what I've learned in all my therapies and, and, uh, and work has been, it goes back to, uh, my family it goes back to the family, um, what's the word I'm looking for image, I guess it's just the simplest way to put it. The family image that yeah. I was brought up to kind of, you know, it was just kind of ingrained that we look good. Mm-hmm. And it goes to both sides of my grandparents. Both, both sets of grandparents were kind of like, you know, we gotta, we gotta look good. And in particular, my mom's side, had a, her father, my grandfather was a, uh, a well-known Baptist preacher. And he came up uh, at the same time Billy Graham did in Minnesota. Um, mm. They did some work together early on and like, Billy sent flowers to my grandfather's funeral. I mean, they were they were they were close for for years and years and years. Wow! And so, so having a grandfather that I mean, we put him up on this pedestal. He was pastor of First Baptist Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, for thirty five years, and he traveled the world doing talks and and preaching. And you know, people people were always calling him day or night to help with problems. And so, man, he was like a celebrity to us. He was he was a celebrity to me. And I saw this, and I wanted to be like him. And I saw him on stage. I saw, you know, the admiration that people had for him, and yeah. I wanted that. Uh-huh. We walked around town. Anytime we go visit, you know, for the holidays or summer break, and we go out to eat, I mean, and people knew him. We'd go around town, hey, Dr. Holcren, how you doing? You know, handshake and give yeah. a hug. And yeah. I was like, I want to be like that. And that really drove me, uh, has driven me, you know, uh, to some good and, and, and unhealthy uh, coping, way, coping ways. And I ended up finding myself out in, in Hollywood doing acting and, and stunt work for a few years trying to achieve that fame, trying to get that, trying to fill that void. Um, that was kind of, the tone was set for my parents the way I was raised and nobody sat me down and said, you're going to look good and you're not going to make us look bad. Nobody ever said that, but it was just, you know, the unspoken, um, you know, aura around yeah. our, our family. Kind of an expectation. Was, and it's hard to go against that. You know, if that, yeah. that's who I felt I needed to be to get approval from my family, then, okay, all right, I'll, I'll do that. And, um, you know, I've had to, had to <laughs> unpack a lot of that in, in recent years and go, you know what I need to, I need to be, cause I didn't want to talk about my addiction and we didn't talk about my brother's addiction for years. My brother died from it. I found my brother dead from an overdose. Mm. He overdosed on cocaine. I saw it firsthand goodness. and we didn't talk about it for years. We didn't talk about it for several years. So we didn't want anybody to know. We just told people it was a heart issue. We were ashamed, yeah, yeah. and the stigma of addiction made it, it was going to make us look bad. So we just said, eh, "It's a hard thing." And the next thing you know, I can't, I can't stay sober, and I'm doing terrible. And I finally was like, went to treatment for the first time, and said, "I got to talk about this." The truth is, my brother died of a drug overdose, and I'm struggling with drug addiction, and I need to be able to talk to my parents about it, and we need to talk about it openly, or I'm going to die. Yeah. And so yeah, you know. And that's boy, interesting insights. But also, I'm so sorry to hear about your brother. Um, and I and I want to get back to that here in a minute as well, because obviously that's a very pivotal moment. And there's a lot of things you're describing surrounding that in terms of hiding it and uh, all the things. Now, now when we talk about, and I want to get into in a minute how you started with this whole addiction process. Uh, you talk about expectations. You mentioned the word aura in your family it was just kind of. 
we have to be a certain way. This is what grandpa was and we, and we all admire and the whole town <laughs> looks up to grandpa. Uh, and so, but from a parenting standpoint, like for example, I recently listened to a book called the collapse of parenting, kind of talking about in the last couple generations, how, uh, instead of parents being as much authoritative and guiding kids, it's kind of being more the best friend or kind of having this weird imbalance uh, from a parenting standpoint. And one of the things I took from the book too was that sometimes it's a tendency of a parent to give a label to a child, like you are smart versus, uh, and there's studies that show this, by the way, versus, oh, you must have worked really hard uh, about they set up two groups of kids on a pretty easy kind of math test where they would do pretty well. And, and then told ones and so they all came out pretty well at the end and they told one set of kids oh you're really smart and they told the other set what i just said which is oh you must have worked really hard and then they gave them another test that was a little harder and the ones who were told that they worked hard it was more about actions than labels they did better and i don't know if there's any of that that you can glean from your childhood or anything or anything else in terms of the parenting and we're not we're not calling out your parents by any means every parent does their best i think for the most part uh, and with their background and how they were parented too. But is there anything from the parenting standpoint that you think might have had anything to do with this or that maybe you've dug up in your therapies and so forth over the years? Yeah, yeah, another uh, great question. Um, yeah, yeah, I don't want to preface it with, you know, my, my, I love my parents. My parents are uh, have been amazing and provided me with a, a wonderful uh, childhood and upbringing and still continue to support me these, yeah, currently. Yes. Um, but, uh, yeah, they did the best they could. And man, I'm making mistakes as a parent. I've got three children myself. And of course I find myself, um, doing exactly what you're, what you're saying. Yeah. Putting that label on, okay, you're the smart one. You're the art, you know, you're the good artistic one and you're the, you know, silly one, funny one. So absolutely. Um, in terms of my growing up, there was, you know, my brother was the smart one. He was, he just was that, well, I wouldn't say naturally smart. Um, he, he did work, he did work hard. And then I was more the, you know, athletic, uh, you know, social butterfly one. Yeah. But that wasn't as smart. I didn't really care that much about grades as long as I got, you know, B's and above, you know, <laughs> uh, a couple C's were okay, but I was a, you know, B or above, but my brother was pretty much straight A's, uh, NBA from Georgetown and, uh, just really, really bright. So, mm-hmm. um, so, the labeling thing you're talking about, did you feel like that label was kind of your own label or was that kind of a family just, again, kind of an unspoken thing that just yeah. existed there? Do you I think, think it was just kind of unspoken that ended up setting in with me, you know, that's, uh, that's crazy that that you're talking about that book. Cause I think that's so true that when you put a label on somebody and here, here's a personal example I can, I can share is uh, my wife. So her, she's one of four kids and there was the smart one, she was the second one, and she was the uh, artistic, uh, pretty one. Was the label that she got, and then the other sister was the spunky one, the you know, and then um, the brother was uh, uh, engineer, kind of you know, break things down. He was a, a smart one as well. Yes. But how that how that has really hurt us in our marriage, if I'm being honest, is when the pornography thing uh, rears its head. And she sees herself as her whole life since she was a kid has been like the pretty one, like, oh, you're the pretty one. And then all of a sudden she's not viewed as the pretty one because I'm looking at somebody else. Yeah. That has detrimental effects because it it goes down to her core. It doesn't just like on the surface level, I'm supposed to be pretty today. It's like 
in her, you know, DNA that that's who she, who she is. And she's told, and I don't think she would mind me saying this because she's she's talked about it before. Um, maybe not on a podcast in front of the world, but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, you know, yes, I think the labels that we get as as children can set the tone for long term. Yeah, you know, I mean, I mean, it sounds effort. like yeah, that's that's right. I think it sounds like with the labels come additional expectations. You're only talking about a, a family expectation of. Uh, we're going to live up to grandpa's standard that he set for the town and so on. And and now it's label of you're this, you're that, you're the smart one, you're the pretty one, you're the whatever. And uh, and so with those other extra expectations might come extra stress and, and maybe a, another void is created of, oh, I have to live up to I'm always the smart one and uh, or I'm always Mr. Class Clown or whatever the, the situation yeah. might might be as sure. well. I mean, that, that has almost killed me that – expectation mm-hmm. so when i ha- so can we go into my what what started my road to addiction yes and that's what yeah, into that. perfect sure please i think it's a great segue here so i was a yeah senior in high school i got those you know award class clown everything was fine i go into college and um do the fraternity thing not heavy into drugs but normal frat you know drinking five days a week kind of thing grades were you know 3.3 gpa uh, communications major. I was social chairman of our fraternity. So senior year rolls around. I'm social chair of our fraternity. I'm dating the ch- a cheerleader who's our fraternity sweetheart. Uh-huh. And I had a full ride scholarship my senior year for doing a video for the athletic uh, teams. Uh-huh. And so I got the same scholarship the, the football players got. Oh, and so I felt wow. like I was like an athlete, you know, even though I'm just this kind of scrawny, uh, door, kind of dorky guy trying to be cool. Um, I felt like I was on top of the world. You're dating a cheerleader. You got a, you got a, you know, an athlete scholarship. Doing pretty good for myself, I thought. And we're coming back. I set up the spring break trip, and we all went out of New Orleans. About 45 of us, and we're coming back from this, you know, booze cruise, spring break 2000. And we're coming back, and a tire blows out in my friend's SUV. Nobody was drinking or driving, doing anything wrong. A tire blows out, and we rolled. Uh, between six and 12 times is what the witness report said. Oh my gosh. Um, across the interstate, uh, outside of Houston. Wow. And wow. so the short of it is, is, uh, the driver, Ashley Furman, um, again, didn't do anything wrong. She passed away. Uh, they landed helicopter on the side of the interstate after they cut her out of the car. I mean, it's one of these scenes in a movie, this like just absolute hell. Wow. I mean, just trauma, you know, like you can't imagine when you're yeah. sitting there on the road and, and my legs got crushed. And so I'm laying there on the side of the road. My legs are, are just mangled. And I'm looking at my friend being pulled out of the car and her, you know, skull is crashed in. And I ended up having 14 surgeries that year trying to save my, my right foot. And got got the painkillers. You know, it was a, you know, a necessity at that point in time to, to be able to make it through that, that time. But, but here's where the disconnection really came in is I'm going from this fraternity lifestyle where I'm really connected I've got all the friends. I've got the girlfriend. I've got the school. Everything is going great. And now all of a sudden I can't walk. I can't go to the bathroom by myself. I'm laid up in a hospital bed. Um, they ended up moving me to my, my parents' house, my dad's home office. So I'm sitting in my dad's home office in a hospital bed. My mom's changing my urinal mm. several times a day. Wow. And nobody, uh, the, my fraternity did not call me. My, my, well, I had a few friends call but as a whole, the fraternity didn't reach out and like send me flowers or a card. And I just found this out recently. 
how traumatic that was for me that um, here I am in a life and death situation mm-hmm. and my good group of friends were didn't care. The reality is they're in their own world. They're trying to graduate. They're, you know, they're doing they're fraternity college guys. They're, you know, they're not super sympathetic. Um, but I took that really personal. I took that as I'm not accepted. I'm not good enough. They don't like me. Wow. And and that is that has hurt me in the last 18 years because I've just found out in the last like literally in the last three months that the reason I don't have I don't let a lot of guys guy I don't have a lot of guy friends or yeah. have it you know, since then yeah. is because of that trauma that like man if I let somebody in if I let some people in um, deeply then they're not going to be there when I really need them and um, so you know these are kinds of things that, that people don't really think about a lot of times until, um, you know, you're forced to, and I, and I, I was forced to recently, mm. um, to have to go back and, and, and uh, you know, uncover some of this stuff. Wow. So anyway, so I, wow. I've disconnected from what I thought was a, a perfect kind of life and, uh, everything was just kind of ripped out from under me and I had painkillers and, uh, I went to town, man. I had that, that allowed me to feel connected. It allowed, it eased the pain, the disease inside of me. And it just progressively got worse from painkillers to uh, other prescription medications, to alcohol, to marijuana. Um, I ended up ended up having my leg amputated a year after the accident and 14 surgeries. And going back to that expectation of, hey, here's another huge one. As soon as the accident happened, I had a fraternity brother say, hey, John, if it's going to happen to somebody, I'm glad it happened to you because you can handle it. Mm. And I didn't figure this out until years later in therapy of like, wait a minute. So I can't break down. I can't not handle this because people think I should be able to handle this because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a happy guy. I should be able to, you know, get through this. I'm a, I'm a dedicated person. Yeah. It's going to happen to somebody. It might as well be you because you can handle it. Oh. You know what? I could not handle it. And I was not willing to break down though. I was not willing to break down and say I couldn't handle it because of that expectation wow. of looking and being perfect. Wow. And that has almost killed me. It sounds like this set off kind of a vicious cycle domino effect of some dominoes that were already (laughs) kind of set up from childhood, but then this traumatic... And by the way, my sincerest condolences for all of that, for everybody involved and for the loss of your friend and ultimately your leg situation and the pain and and the other things that you experienced, the loss and the friends not being there as as you might have expected or hoped. Uh, But we talk about this domino effect... Uh, of and it sounds to me kind of what I'm hearing is that there's there's uh, these dominoes like I was kind of saying can be kind of set up you know figuratively speaking uh, in a certain way and different people everyone's different but in some capacity from different paths a lot of people end up down this road of okay I'm escaping into addiction I don't know if escape is the right word but uh, these dominoes of what was expected of your your Mister Social, Mister Positive, and uh, and this traumatic thing, and your friends weren't there for you, and then all of a sudden it spiraled out of control. It sounds like, and you talk about getting how how quickly did you go from? I mean, I'm, I guess I'm asking a couple questions about the domino effect plus going into these other harder drugs and and how it kind of escalated. You want to talk about the domino effect and the escalation? <laughs> Yeah, I, mean, I haven't heard it described that way, the domino effect. Um, that's the first time I've had somebody reflect that back to me, and that's a really great visual for me. Thank you. I, I bet a lot of listeners can, can relate to that as well, that the, yeah, the dominoes of the family dynamics are set up in a way early on in your life 
And when things don't go right or as they're supposed to or as it's expected, then you're not going over and then um, and it may happen fast and it may happen slow, mm-hmm. but it's a it opens the door for folks to turn to something outside of themselves to fill that void. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely right, man. So yeah, it didn't take long. Where you know I was pretty relatively straight laced person. I mean, I've always been a manipulator. Um, I've always been a I would say like a like a con artist in a way. Not necessarily even conning other people, but conning myself. Wow. And that's what's really hurt, hurt me the most is, is lying to myself because um, I just want people to like me so much that I'll say what, you know, I'll, I'll say what they want me to say. I'll do what they want me to do just so I can feel like I can fit in because if I don't get accepted, because I don't really accept myself um, because I feel broken from these ear surgeries as a kid, that if you don't accept me, then I, I can't accept myself. And then who am I? Yeah. And so... Yeah, man. When the fraternity thing happened, the fraternity guys didn't come around. Mm-hmm. Um, my school, they oh, they pulled my scholarship from me because they had to have somebody fill that that job I was doing. The university had to have somebody fill the job, so they pulled my scholarship from me. Mm. You know, and I'm going, what the heck just happened? And so I had my leg amputated um, March of 2001, and I graduated May 2001, walking the stage on a temporary prosthetic, and. <clears throat> Wow! I tell you how bad a shape I was in. I had uh, I was drinking so much leading up to those days of graduation that I had uh, tried to stand up on my crutches and I fell backwards. Mm-hmm. I was so intoxicated and I landed right on my stump that I just had amputated six weeks before. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't. They had the temporary prosthetic that uh, I could barely even put on for my graduation when all my family and friends came into town. I, I just lied and told people I fell in the shower, um, but it was really because I was just extremely drunk. Um, then the next night I was, uh, cooking something over on the, on the coil stove in, in my old apartment and I kind of let, lost my balance again, being intoxicated on, on pain pills and alcohol. And I put my hand right on the, right on the stove, on the coil. Just... Mm. And so here, here again, here Goodness. goes family and friends coming to town. John's going to graduate with the, you know, newly amputated leg. He can do it. And I come hobbling in. I can barely even use my crutches because my hand is, has like these, three rings around it that are blistered. And so it's on my left hand and then my right leg's amputated. And here it was just, I was just came hobbling into graduation, but I was bound to get across the stage. I got across the stage with a cane and I was just gritting my teeth, but I did it. And I moved to Dallas uh, to start my first job that I had out of college. Mm-hmm. And I was, I basically lived by myself. My roommate from college was, was out of town Monday through Friday on a consulting job. And I, next thing you know, I'm, I'm mixing uh, drugs in my apartment, um, a drug called GHB, and uh, just uh, not doing well, driving around town in Dallas, uh, intoxicated, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. showing up to work, just reeking of alcohol. I mean, nothing that, that I was brought up to do, but man, when I was, I was in such conflict with, hey, I'm doing, I'm terrible shape right now. I had all this stuff taken from me, and here I am, you know, with a permanent physical disability. However, on the other side, I'm supposed to be okay. Yeah. And how do I handle both? And I tried to juggle it all for years and years and years, uh, but it, it 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 escalated very quickly. Within the first year, I was I quit my job and I was moving out to California, thinking that a change of pace, change of scenery would help. And we all know that doesn't usually yeah. help. Boy, what goodness. 
And when you talk about all this, I have a couple of questions, and I appreciate your honesty and courage of opening up like this. And uh, and I hope that helps others who may be listening, whether it's them or a loved one or multiple people involved experiencing anything like this, that, that they can follow your example with that. And when we, uh, first of all, if, if this tragic event hadn't happened, it's crazy how a, a moment, because that's, even if you rolled six to 12 times, that's, you know, five or 10 seconds and it changed everything. If that hadn't happened, do you think that you would have gone down this road still in some capacity? Or do you think that was kind of a a trigger that that got you to that place. I mean, obviously, it's very, very traumatic, and, and there's no blame. It's not like, oh well, goodness, it's your fault still, or. Something. But do, do you think if it hadn't been for that, you still might have gotten there? Um, yes, and maybe not as quickly, or maybe not as intensely. But um, yes, I think I would have been driven to try to succeed, you know, in the business world, or um, try to, you know, let, let me try to obtain money or, or success in other ways to fill that, that insecurity. So yeah, I think it comes out, it would have come out in other ways. Were were you already, if you don't mind me asking, were you already kind of dabbling in some of these things before, as far as, you know, the marijuana or alcohol and things? Um, not really. Uh, I did marijuana in college, like maybe six times or something like maybe smoked marijuana five or six times. Like not, it wasn't something I was into. Uh, just the, the alcohol was the alcohol was absolutely a um, a crutch or a, a way for me to yeah. relate and and feel comfortable. And, and and as you described going to Dallas with this first job, as I recall, um, what what was it? Was there any sort of thought process behind this? Because you start talking about alcohol and pain pills, and and again, I use the word escape that I, I don't know is the completely accurate word, but was there a thought process involved or it just kind of became a compulsive set of, of habits, just going through the motions, this is what I do now? Was there any thought process to any of this? No, and no, no thought process, process whatsoever. I mean, it was just uh, unconscious. I was just escaping, and I had no, I didn't, had no conscious thought of what I was doing or why I was doing it or what I was escaping from. I had no idea I was escaping. Um, mm-hmm. I just thought I was trying, I was just getting through life yeah. and, you know, I wasn't around somebody on a consistent basis long enough for them to, for somebody to like figure it out. And so I ended up moving out to San Diego to work on a master's in counseling. Like, Oh, here, let, let me go counsel other people. But it was really a way for me to just, again, avoid looking at me. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, an unconscious thought and decision. I didn't consciously go work on counseling so I could go. Uh, help help other people not look at me, but that's ended up ended up what happened. What happened, and it wasn't until uh, I got married and my wife, uh, who went to Baylor when she graduated, she moved out to San Diego, and we dated for two years. and And I was in San Diego, and she was in Texas. Uh-huh. And she had no idea the extent of what I was dealing with or what she was about to step into um, until she moved in, because, like I said, nobody nobody really knew. Right. Um, right. So. So you, you ended up in San Diego, and uh, how, how did that – did things continue continue to escalate from there, or uh... – They stayed about the same. I mean, I, you know, a little bit of marijuana, a little bit of um, – then it was – when I couldn't get pain pills, it was alcohol or um, uh, Adderall mm-hmm. just for ADHD, and that's something that can be easily abused. Um, 
then next thing you know, yeah, it started escalating a little bit more where, well, I say a little bit, I'm, I'm probably minimizing it. Next thing you know, I'm driving down to Tijuana to, to buy pain pills down in Tijuana across the border and sneak those back over. And it wasn't massive quantities or anything. I wasn't like selling it, but it was, it was, man, I, and again, just unconscious. I'm just going down there because it's like my soul is hurting and I'm trying to, I'm trying to just not deal with me. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I'm driving down Tijuana to get pain pills. I was like, man, I've never thought that I would do that ever. Nobody, no, in my healthy mind, like I am today, why would I ever go do that? But man, that was the only option I had at that point to just try to get through, to get through the pain. And here's what I would love listeners. I'd love to, to let your listeners know if you or somebody that you know is struggling with, with an addiction of any kind that's negatively affecting their life, mm-hmm. it's okay. They're not bad people. They're not a bad person. You are not a bad person. Um, but the way we look at it in, in the addiction recovery field, um, and I, I don't think we've stated yet that I do work for, um, I want to make sure that listeners have a, have a resource. Uh, I work for addiction campuses, and we have um, four residential treatment facilities around the country. And um, if somebody's looking for help, please go to addictioncampuses.com and uh, uh, talk to one of our treatment specialists um, online. And so, yeah, so next thing you know, I'm doing stuff that I never thought that I would do. But here's the thing is mm-hmm. I was, I'm sick. Mm-hmm. I'm in my addiction. I'm in active addiction. I'm a person who's sick. And if somebody has like diabetes or heart disease, these are chronic diseases that left untreated over time only get worse yeah. and they can lead to early death. So if somebody with cancer, diabetes or heart disease kind of steps forward and says, hey, man, I'm struggling with this disease. I need to go to the doctor. I need to get on some medications. I need to get on a nutrition plan. I need to take some insulin. I need to, you know, I need to go right. get chemotherapy. Right. People, people go, yeah, yeah, man, go do that. You're, you're, you could die if you don't get that addressed. But with addiction, there's where that stigma comes in. The stigma comes in and goes, oh, well, he, you know, John's making bad decisions. It's his fault. He needs to go get better on his own. And we pull people's jobs away from them, their health insurance away from them. We kick them out of their homes. We put people in jail. And we isolate them more and more. And if we go back to the Rat Park experiment, the more you isolate somebody who's already sick, they're not going to get better on their own. They need treatment. They need counseling. They need, you know, medication management. Maybe they need some uh, an exercise program or a nutrition program so the body can get back to being more healthy because of all the alcohol or drugs they're taking. Right. So, right. you know, it's just people aren't, they're not bad people. They're people who are sick who need help. Yeah. Boy, that's a, that's an excellent point because you're absolutely right about this stigma that exists, and I appreciate you expanding a little more on your story too. Uh, why do you think this stigma exists? Because I've noticed it exists surrounding addiction and mental illness, which in a lot of ways can go hand in hand. Um, why does that? Or I don't know if you have an answer or not. We could chat about maybe some theories, but what, what do you think? Yeah, I think it has to has to do with. Um for the, for the longest time, people thought it's a choice, that it's just a, it's a moral failing, uh-huh. um, that it's somebody just making bad choices, and it's their fault. Um, you know, it is recognized mental health, uh, you know, different mental health issues, as well as um, addiction is, is classified as a, as a disease. Uh, but I think a lot of people don't want to admit that or, or, you know, for generations past, it's just been a, hey, that's something that needs to be taken care of inside the home, and the family just needs to deal with it or not deal with it. And other people don't need to know about it. Mm. Um, but cancer and heart disease, it's okay to, to put that on Facebook and say, hey, I got cancer. 
I'm going to need some time off of work to go, you know, have some chemo treatments every week. Is that okay to talk to my employer about that? Absolutely. Hey, man, I've got some, I've got an addiction issue. I need to step away for, for 30 days to go get some treatment. Can I, can I use some FMLA um, time to go not die <laughs> and come back yeah, to work? Yeah. And uh, so that's one of the great things I get to do with addiction campuses. When we get, when we get off the, off of here, uh, I've actually I've got to leave in about 15, 20 minutes to head to do a, a drug-free workplace training for the city of Goodlettsville, right outside of Nashville here. Um, I did one yesterday and do another one today. We'll be training about 150 employees, talking about a lot of these same topics that we're talking about today. Mm-hmm. Um, so let people know in the workplace, don't wait till you get fired to get help. Um, if you step forward a lot of times to, to an HR manager or to, you know uh, somebody in leadership position that, that you can trust, um, a lot of times, when you come forward and say, "Hey, I need help," people are gonna people can see that that uh, you know uh, can offer some compassion. Um, yeah. We're not quite there yet. That's part of my job is to to let people know we need to have a compassionate approach to people struggling, and not this not this hard front like, "Ed, you can beat this addiction. You got it. You can get this." Man, you can't beat it on your own. <laughs> yeah, uh, people yeah. have been trying for for you know, since the beginning of time to do it on their own, and, and that's why twelve step programs and, and support groups have been so beneficial because they reconnect people um, and keep people from, from feeling isolated and alone. Yeah. So uh, it's just a one day thing, man. One, one day at a time. I, I just do the best I can with the resources God's given me um, to be able to be on, on this, you know, show with you. If, if we help one person, it's, it's totally worth it. If we can get one person to step out of the shadows and say, maybe today's the day that I pick up the phone and I, and I call my pastor. Or maybe today's the day I, uh, you know, I go to addictioncampuses.com and, and get on their website and uh, ask, ask for some help. Yeah, um, yeah, I, I can second everything you're saying about that, and I and I want to, in, in the sense of reassuring our audience, I appreciate you doing that, or anybody out there uh, who might come across this that that there are a lot of people that care, and that's one of the reasons this this thing goes. Uh, as far as it does with some people is because they, they believe something that's not true, which is quite the opposite, that they're, they're alone. We always tell our audience, uh, you are priceless and you are never alone and uh, kind of elaborate on that in most of our episodes. And, and so I want to you know second what you're saying and again in this episode reassure them that you are priceless and you are never alone. And that applies whether it's an addiction or any other depression things that, that might go along with, with some of these downward spirals that – there are a lot of us out here who who do care. So please, please, if, yeah. if this is going on, please turn to somebody for help. Um, yes, please, please. And especially with the holidays coming up here. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh no, yeah, please talk about the holidays. I mean, that's and people might be listening to this any time of the year too. But tell me yeah. your thoughts on that because this is one of the times where people, the downward spiral can get more intense. Yeah. You know, we see kind of a dip in the treatment industry here at, at addiction campuses, a, a dip in, in call call volume. We, we typically take around ten to 12,000 calls a month um, wow. all around the country, and we help get people in treatment centers all across the country, not just our treatment centers. Um, so we can help help narrow the field down for somebody if they're uh, struggling on, on where to go. If they're not a fit for us, that's great. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll find you a place somewhere else, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but uh, this is the time of year where people put off um, any kind of – treatment a lot of times when <laughs> I'll be honest with you, I've been in treatment over Thanksgiving before I've missed Thanksgiving and I've been in treatment uh, over Christmas before I missed Christmas. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you, it was one of the, one of the healthiest holidays for me. And it was one of the healthiest holidays for my family, even though we weren't together, 
you know, we were able to kind of catch our breath. And, and my, my wife was able to, okay, he's not here. I don't have to worry about what's going on or what might be going on behind the scenes. And I was able to, to not have to feel stress of, you know, I'm the black sheep of the family. Everybody's looking at me. You know, I'm the screw-up guy. And so this is actually a, a good time of year to consider uh, reaching out for help because, you know, yeah. the, the, the holidays just bring in a lot of stress, as we all know. Mm-hmm. And, and not just Christmas and Thanksgiving, but, I mean, any kind of family gathering. I have found that I've, I've had to say no to, like, Easter before. We're, we're going to travel uh, three hours away to uh, Easter one year, and I was kind of new in my in my sobriety after my relapse at that point in time. And I just said, you know what, I need to stay home. I just need to, to stay close to home and go to my, my meetings, my 12-step meetings, and, and not rock the boat. Um, so it doesn't just have to be the big holidays, but it can be a you know a, a family birthday that every year we get together for you know Uncle Uncle Jack's birthday. Yeah, and yeah. Maybe, maybe there's a year, maybe this is the year that you show yourself some compassion and go, it's just too stressful for me to be there this year. I'm gonna not go. Yeah, and that's okay. You know, if you're gonna find yourself drinking like crazy there or, or overeating, or you know being gossiped about or gossiping about others, maybe maybe it's okay to, to give yourself some grace and say, I'm just not gonna go this year. Okay. Yeah, no, great points and great example because you've lived it through the holidays and other experiences like that. So again, especially this time, don't hide, don't run, you know, any of you listening who this is crossing your path in any capacity of yourself or loved one or whatever it might be. We don't need to hide from it. And and let's let's be nicer to ourselves, too. Let's not, uh, you know, let's not put on so much pressure and expectation. You can free yourself a little bit as well just, just by doing that. And, and I... One thing I want to go back because you got places to go and so on, as we just talked about too. Let's talk real quick a little bit further about your California and your situation with your brother. Okay. Um, you, yeah, yeah. you mentioned you you got into the the whole when we were inter- interacting here via email with the acting and so on, and and then tell me more about all of that and how that transpired. Yeah, so I mean, I've been an actor my entire life. Like I was saying, I, I put on I put on an act my entire life. <laughs> and I want people to think that I'm a certain way when yeah. I'm really not. And yeah. so I was practicing <laughs> for acting my entire life. And so uh, as I was getting to the end of my grad school program there at San Diego State, my cousin's an actor, and he called me up and said, hey, I'm going to lose. I'm gonna, I got this role where I'm going to lose my leg uh, in a roadside bomb in, in Iraq in this, in this uh, television show. And could you um, take me through what you went through in your car accident to help me connect with my character? And I said, sure. And one thing led to another. I got hired on for his body double. And so we have kind of a similar look and, and build. And so here I here I am on a 13 episode uh, TV series uh, playing the the body double. And it was uh, a technical consultant was what I was classified as. And so I would make sure on set each day that that you know whatever scene they were they were portraying his leg in or his amputation or you know he's getting a new prosthetic, he's trying to run on the prosthetic, he's trying to get back and fight back in Iraq again. Uh, so I made sure everything you know looked. Uh, accurate and uh we made people magazine and access hollywood and mm-hmm. usa today and you know all these national press outlets come out and i'm thinking man i'm getting back i'm coming back up on top mm-hmm. you know building up this ego again i'm i'm, I'm overcoming and mm-hmm. so end up moving from san diego uh to la to to do this full time and i mm-hmm. man, this is a nice niche in, in hollywood you know industry for playing the amputee and getting your leg blown off and playing the wounded soldier so I signed up for the acting classes, got an acting coach, and hit the ground running and um, worked on NCIS, worked on episode of ER, uh, JAG, Brothers and Sisters, Cold Case. Wow. Um, 
couple uh, game show called Identity just lasted one season. Uh, you know, number of commercials, uh, and then uh, I was in the movie Super Bad. That's that's the that's the uh, the feather of my cap. Is I have one one word in the movie Super Bad. It's a curse word, so I won't say it. Uh, but uh, I jogged past Jonah Hill on a, a track scene and uh, oh. with my prosthetic leg, and just curse at him as I run by. And so kind of my my claim to fame there. <laughs> and so here y'all here I am hanging out with you know. Bruce Willis, and I'm going bowling at Phil Jackson's house, NBA, you know, coach yeah. legend for the Bulls and the Lakers. I'm bowling at Phil Jackson's house and yep. cab rides with Andy Dick on, he's trying to lick my face while we're in a cab and just, you know, weird stuff. <laughs> but I'm, I'm thinking, man, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm back in the game alive. <laughs> I'm doing pretty good for myself, but all behind the scenes was, was drugs and, and, and alcohol. Ugh. And, um, I got to the Playboy Mansion with uh, Adam Sandler and Bruce, Bruce Willis and Emma Stone uh, after a red carpet event, and I'm thinking it doesn't get any better than this. Mm. You know, I'm, I'm living in Hollywood. I'm getting blown up on major Hollywood sets with blood and guts and explosions of helicopters, mm. and I'm hanging at the Playboy Mansion with Adam Sandler. What could be better than this? <laughs> and I was miserable, and then it got worse because. Just a few short months after that is when uh, when I got the call that my brother didn't show up for work, and it wasn't the drugs or the cocaine that killed him; it's the stigma. The stigma killed my brother because we didn't want people to know that our family was struggling with this because it's going to make us look bad. Mm. And I walked into his bedroom door. Well, I had to kick in his bedroom door that was locked, and um, and, and found my brother and my best friend. Uh, he'd been dead for three days from an overdose. He was alone, disconnected. He had childhood trauma that we didn't really figure out until after all this happened. Mm. He had some childhood trauma that we had no idea was there that he never dealt with. And that's what drove his addiction his entire life was that disconnection from, from trauma. Wow. Wow. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah. yeah. You describe this again get more condolences because you've dealt with a lot a lot of people deal with a lot of different things some people dealt with lots of things we're not even talking about here uh and but my condolences i can't imagine i have two brothers myself and i have two boys myself and they're close as can be and uh, i can't imagine either of them losing they're six and nine right now but uh they love and need each other so i i kind of understand that coming from this boy background in my life too or girls too. We love the girls, and they suffer as well in their own ways. Any other insights on that? As far because I've lived in L.A. as well, and I sometimes it, a lot of people there. There's lots of performers. There's a lot of uh, attempts to fill a void with the performing, and then subsequently with drugs because the performing didn't. Like you said, you were still miserable. You're doing things a lot of people would love to do. Let's hang out on Hollywood sets and go to the Playboy Mansion with Adam Sandler. <laughs> Yeah, people trying yeah, to fill man. voids left yeah, and right. And, you know, just filling, filling a void again, a disease. I'm just filling, filling. Or I was, I can only speak for myself, um, thinking that the next thing was going to make me feel better. And so you get the next role. You know, you get go to the bigger audition. You get the next role. You're thinking, okay, oh yeah, this is it. This is the biggest one I've had yet. This is cool. And you know, I'm meeting Seth Rogen. Ooh, ooh, mm. that, he's a he's a big deal. Yeah. Um, but then you get home and you're like, well, I didn't fill that. So you keep pushing to get the next one. And I think a lot of people can probably relate in their in their job, you know, getting the next pay raise. Or, hey, if I can get to the, you know, if I can make partner in this in this job, then I'll be okay. Or if I can move up to the management position, then I'll be okay. Um, you know, 
you don't just take a step back and, and be okay with where you're at, no matter what your current circumstances are. And that's where, that's where real, real peace and, and serenity uh, comes from is just sitting back and, and a tool that I've used if we're looking at like a solution. One of the solutions I have found to really help is, is meditation and prayer. Yes. Um, yes. And absolutely. talking to other people about my feelings in real time as a, as an overwhelming feeling comes up, call somebody, Hey man, I'm feeling like crazy in the head right now. I need to talk to you about it. You know, just talk for three or four minutes and that could be some, you know, half hour counseling session with your buddy. But, um, I have found, you know, some trusted friends that I can call when I'm feeling funky or feeling antsy, let them know what I'm feeling. Okay. Let it pass. All right. I'm, I'm not that I don't have to attach to those feelings for a long period of time. I can recognize them, take a step back, take some breaths, you know, do a meditation or, or some prayer. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you can kind of, kind of move on, but. Yeah, the industry out there is just just littered with uh, with folks trying to fill the void. With and we're not the outside to fill the void on the inside. Of course, and we're not judging. In fact, we're encouraging and loving of all of them and everywhere, everyone, everywhere else too, who's experiencing this. You know, Hollywood's its own kind of unique animal that way. But you know, there's a lot of counterfeits in this world. And I, and I like what you said too, by the way, about having kind of your own inner circle support system. Okay, I can turn to this buddy or this family member. If you're having a bad day or bad moment, uh, to kind of talk about it and so on, so that we're not just staying silent. But when I talk about the counterfeit, I mean, there's so much that we're raised, especially in America, believe in so many things fill our lives, whether it's food, whether it's sex, whether it's drugs, whether it's becoming that famous thing, actor, musician, whatever. Uh, and, and those are all at the end of the day in and of themselves in my own experience and from what you're describing, ultimately empty things. They can be, they can be beautiful parts of our lives, but there has to be something that's not counterfeit, something real of substance. And we have to, I think, learn to differentiate. And, and if we were wrong before and pursued things that were counterfeit, fine, fine. Now we learned, let's just keep moving forward because, and that's some of just what I'm hearing from you. And uh, and I know you got to go soon. I'd love to keep talking with you. Maybe we can uh, continue this another time too. But it, what what else do you want to say to those suffering with addiction and or uh, those loved ones surrounding them? Yeah. So I would say let me, we can. And, and hey, if we want to jump on a, on another call uh, another day and, and continue this, we can. Um, I'm absolutely open to that. Um, what I would, I'd love to just leave a couple simple, you know, kind of solutions for folks. Yeah, we've talked about the problem a lot. Um, but so if you see somebody, if you or yourself, a loved one, you're starting to see some uh, some signs that something might be going wrong with them or something. Maybe they're struggling with some kind of addiction or some just kind of uh, disconnection. Doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. Again, it can be it can be a love and relationships. That's a big one, I think, uh, for a lot of people is, hey, if I can get that relationship, that's going to fill the void for me. And they get in that relationship, and they're miserable. They're still miserable there. Um, mm-hmm. And so they bounce from person to person to person trying to trying to fill a void. So that's, that's just kind of a, another one that came to mind. But if you see somebody that's becoming more withdrawn, um, consumes larger amounts of, of their drug of choice, which could be, you know, CrossFit. It could be, you know, Netflix binging on, you know, Netflix for, you know, hours and hours and hours at a time. Um, if they're having difficulty with the relationships or engaging in dangerous behaviors, you know, these are all kind of signs that, that um, there might be something going on underneath the surface. Um, if you or loved ones feeling anxious or irritable, uh, loss of interest in school or work, um, addictive behavior, you know, starts to become the solution and not the problem. 
that took me a while to figure out that like the drugs and the alcohol weren't my problem. They were my solution. The problem was me. The problem mm-hmm. wasn't my brother's death and it wasn't my leg amputation and it wasn't my friend dying. The problem was me. Yeah. And I had to, I had to, I had to have somebody beat that into me. Uh, uh, I had a counselor counselor that I was working with, and he was just, he was, I'm going to be brutally honest with you, John, because I don't want you to be buried next to your brother. But nobody out there is going to tell you this, that all you are when you're in your active addiction and alcoholism is a crippled drunk. He said, that's all you are, okay? And until you realize that, you're not going to get better. You're not Mr. Hollywood. You're not Mr. You know, guy on TV. You're just a crippled drunk like any other guy who's about to lose his family and could lose his life if he didn't stop doing what he's doing. And so for me at that point in time, I needed to hear that. He recognized that. I would suggest that to everybody, but, um, he helped me recognize that the, the, you know, the problem was me. The problem is not the drugs and the alcohol. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so if you want to approach somebody that's struggling, you know, use a loving and compassionate approach. Um, talk when they're sober, talk when they're not actively engaged in their, in their, you know, uh, negative behavior. And just state some facts. Hey, I'm worried about your health. Hey, I've noticed I've noticed you, you know, missing work a lot lately. Is anything going on? Hey, I've, I've noticed you and your girlfriend have been fighting a lot. Is, is everything okay? Um, so just just kind of state state some facts. And and sometimes people, are, if you're like me, I'm going to deny it and say I'm just going to lie and say no, everything's good. Everything's good. At yeah. least at least uh, they know that if you let them know, hey, if anything's ever going on, you can come and talk to me. Okay, no, no judgment here. I just want to let you know I'm here for you if you need anything. Yeah. Sometimes that's all you can do. Wow. And uh, so, and that's a beautiful you can't force somebody to get help, but you can you can let somebody know that you're available if they need it. Yeah, exactly. Kind of, I was gonna say a beautiful kind of open-ended approach of is anything going on? I'm always here for you. Not gonna judge. Just a reassuring openness that so that people feel comfortable because a lot of times people don't necessarily feel that everywhere because there's all these expectations, all this stuff we talked about from the beginning. And I want, we need to break down those walls and let people know that there is hope and they don't need to feel lost and alone anymore. And my goodness gracious, we could go on and on and on. What's your, what's your website, uh, John? So addictioncampuses.com. Okay. And if somebody wants to call, uh, call and talk to one of our treatment specialists right now, I mean, I'm, I'm sitting one wall over from about 30 treatment specialists that take calls all across the country all day long. Wow. Um, that number is, uh, if you want to grab a pen real quick, is 888-614-2251. Again, addictioncampuses.com. The phone number, 888-614-2251. Wow. If, and if anything I said resonated with uh, with anybody who want to connect with me on social media, um, I'm John Clint Mabry on all social media platforms. It's J-O-H-N-C-L-I-N-T-M-A-B-R-Y. Excellent. John Clint Mabry. And uh, I love what you're doing. Uh, sometimes things happen in ways we don't want in life, but you're on a mission. And I think that's another huge lesson, no matter what people are going through, have experienced in life, addiction or other things, find your mission, find your purpose, lift humanity. And that's where you're going to find your legacy before you depart this uh, place we call earth (laughs) right now. And I appreciate everything you're doing, John. I love it. And, uh, I love that you're trying to lift, lift people. I appreciate and honor your honesty and courage too, to share your story like this. And uh, let's let's pick up uh, where we left off uh, at a future time. I'll let you go run, do the okay. things you mentioned. And uh, until next time, for our audience, empower yourself, empower the world around you. 
Thanks so much for listening to Empower Humans. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review this podcast. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit empowerhumans.com. We'll catch you next time.